I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, Gary. Hi, Guy. How are you? I'm very well. Haven't seen you for, oh, hours. (laughs) Hours and hours. Yes, just a few hours. Um, So it's another drummer this week. It is another drummer, but this is not another drummer. This is an absolute uh, mold making and breaking yeah drummer yeah i mean a musical drummer this guy is you know he's he sort of his percussive quality is is you know the musical sort of percussion that he's created over the years has has been groundbreaking yeah uh with the likes of yes uh and, and i mean for me he was the yes in their pomp you know when he left yes and they did tales from topographic oceans i kind of gave up you know, and, and obviously, you know, the commercial stuff came with Trevor Horn later, but those sort of first five Yes albums, I mean, that's it. Yeah. Well, this here's the thing. That's your thing. My thing is very much the Crimson thing, and especially that spate of albums he made around 1980. I, I really want to talk about oh, that. With Tony Levin on bass. With Tony Levin and Adrian Ballou, oh, yeah. yeah. That sort of, which was his already his second stint yeah. with them. But also, you know, Bill has been on tour with Genesis. He he replaced Phil Collins really when Phil Collins stepped up to sing yeah. after Peter Gabriel left, uh, and, and did all that. A tour he's played with Roy Harper, with Chris Squire, uh, Patrick Mraz, and of course his own band Earthworks. Earthworks, yeah. God, there's gonna be he's. A lot. You know what? He's the he's the I th- I would say he's the drumming equivalent of Jeff Beck, both in sort of technical mastery. And total non-careerists follow your heart. Would you like to tell him that? You know, I think I would. Well, let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. But it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. It's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. That's it. Get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Ah, three. three. It's nice to see Very you. Very nice to see you. Thanks so much, Bill, for coming uh, to do this. Uh, so, well, yeah, you know, uh, absolutely. That's no, a pleasure. Of course, because you, you've got a, a, a box set to sell i guess and that's uh, a well, good excuse to get out of your retirement again the, <laughs> well you see the thing about retirement is that um the only thing i retired from was public performance that's the tricky bit well you say uh, that but you did you did actually play with a local soul covers band didn't you oh how the hell did you hear that ah. i mean that's so unfair <laughs> That's not, it was, it, that's not so, even fair. You know, I mean, oh, if we're going to go down this no, road... No, 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 no. Right. We're not tabloids. We're, <laughs> we're not looking for salacious... <laughs> yeah, I did. I played Motown for the yeah. first time in my life. And wow. it, was, it was extraordinary. 
But how was that? Because, I mean, let's face it, Bill, you're, you're not known for just laying down a simple 4-4 all the way through a tune. It's true. I didn't ever think I was pretty good. I didn't ever think I was any good at that. But I tell you, you'll know this, but, you know, having a whole room of people dancing is really special. It's great. You know, nobody's ever danced to anything I've ever played in my life. <laughs> I don't understand why. Uh, you know, I think I, I think it's perfectly straightforward music, but yeah. a lot of other people don't uh, don't dance to my stuff. So I'm thrilled to, um, to to play for a room full of people dancing. It's quite funny when you, you say that because you know, because I used to play with Pink Floyd, and obviously yes. we used to play Money every night. And of course, that's the thing. <laughs> yeah. People go, yeah, and everyone would get up to dance, and they could, and of course, it's in seven eight, and they couldn't understand why it wasn't working. <laughs> <laughs> Their usual moves weren't yeah, working. Exactly. So what made you, you've got this box set, but what I was interested in is how you put this together because your career is so diverse and so interesting that you, instead of putting it into bands, you've decided to put it into these four sections, the collaborator, which obviously is yes. And King Crimson and, yeah, um, and then, and then the composing leader, which is your band uh, and earthworks uh, and you're obviously your special guest work and the improviser, the stuff you did with Patrick Moraz. And lots of others, too. Yeah, well, it's to do with, um, partly to do with the way musicians uh, operate. And you'll know about this, you know, performing with others collaboratively, uh, such as with Yes or King Crimson, performing perhaps as a leader, performing for a leader, or perhaps without a leader at all. These, these are all different contexts that musicians perform in. And it's important that, that we understand which, which, which context we're performing in, I think. Um, and it's a way of segmenting up the music because I'm not sure the listener knows that really. They just think we turn up and do what we want uh, with varying levels of direction. Sometimes you're in, uh, intensely directed, like when you're a special guest or something like that, or a session guy. Sometimes you're not directed at all when you're improvising. Uh, and these are quite different ways of enacting in music, I think. Because when you did, I'm, we're probably going to be jumping around all over the place chronologically. Yeah, but like, let's jump. Yeah, when you did your thing with Patrick Moraz, for instance, that looked like you were very much looking for kind of, it wasn't a drummer playing with a, a, with a piano player. It was made very much a collaboration of equals, just two musical instruments firing off. Indeed, each other. So, indeed so, yeah. I, I mean, it's not necessarily one supporting the other, yeah. but then I've never been quite that sort of drummer either. I mean, we're all kind of, even characters, I think, and um, it's more of a conversation. If you've got two people on stage, it's like a conversation, a bit like we're having now. It's what an improvisation is, really. We're making this up as we go along, folks. <laughs> Don't tell them. Yeah, but, <clears throat> but obviously, there's different levels of this. I mean, you're, we're, we're going to talk about these uh, these particular uh, projects in more detail, I'm sure. But we, mm. when you're working with Yes, I mean, the, you know, you were a, a, a very strong collaborator. Um, but probably the the fact that there were also four. Or five other strong collaborators made that quite a difficult process at times. It did. It did. But um, musicians get better at this, figuring out how it's all interpersonal relationships. Don't you think it's all, are you, are you good with yeah. other people? You know, can you get along? Can you understand what the other guy's trying to say? Play well with others. <laughs> play well with others. You know, I mean, it's, it's really key. It's what it's all about, isn't it? And I think some guys are better at that than others. Uh, certainly collaborative work with four or five hot-headed guys, and you'll know this, is, um, can be tricky. You know, of course, you've got your, your ideas and somebody else, is, um, somebody else has got their very strong ideas. I think in 
sort of mid-80s King Crimson, it was really nice. I mean, we used Tony Levin on bass. I'm not going to tell Tony what to play. Yeah. Uh, you know, Adrian Ballou on guitar. I don't even know how he gets the sounds out of the guitar. So, yeah. And he's not really going to tell me what to do on the drums. You just, you just, it's assumed at that level that the, that the guys you're working with know what's best. You didn't mention Robert in that. <laughs> I, I was going to say, because, because on the other hand, there is none stronger probably in the business than as a leader than Robert yeah. Fripp, surely. Well, he'd have a heart attack if you called him a leader, of course. He, he doesn't like being called a leader. Uh, let's, think, let's think more about thinking. It's like a conceptualist, if you like. It's like, um, well, we're going to do a bit of... We, I suggest he might say, we're going to do a bit of this. We play on this particular ballpark... Uh, with these particular things and perhaps not on that particular ballpark with things we won't do over here things we might do here we could try uh, uh, you know we had lots of lovely tools we could do these things with electronic drums and rolling guitar synthesizers and all kinds of great stuff the words rock and jazz were never mentioned occasionally in the 1980s we talk about village music and gamelans and things which were becoming world music we later turned into world music uh, Robert was um, a conceptualist, if you like, and would suggest things that we could do. He'd throw a number of balls in the air, if you like, uh, and uh, see if anybody caught them. And if they all dropped to the ground, that didn't matter either. But is he the, is he in any way the uh, the artist who's bringing together certain mediums? You know, let's use oils, let's use pastels, let's let, uh, let's use glass. You know, is he that guy? Or do you feel that in the room? Or once he's made his choice in musicians and everyone's equal? Uh, everyone's equal. You can do what you want so long as he's never heard it before. <laughs> there is that kind of vibe going on. Any drumming you like, Bill, so long as I've never heard it before. Um, so he's a, he's a thinker, I think. Uh, and he's quite capable of illustrating his thoughts on the first song and a half. After that, you know... We're up and running. We're on, we're on a plan. We're on a mission. We're going to try and make that work. I'm not making any sense to you, am I? There's a very interesting thing I heard. Life in King Crimson. I think you're also being very political, but that's okay. Yeah, exactly. oh, I saw you interesting. So a friend of mine has just made that documentary about King Crimson, which is an absolutely fascinating film. Toby. Yeah, Toby, Toby Ames. Yeah, yeah. And um, he's my neighbour down here. And he, is he? But, but the way everyone skirts around the issues is extraordinary. But there's something you said in an interview a while back, which I thought was interesting. You said you don't leave King Crimson. King Crimson leaves you. Well, what are you going to do? I mean, you know, it's, it's not a career option, King Crimson. It's, it's not a career <laughs> bad. It's not something you do, you know, to, to, to plan your pension on. It's not going to work that way. It's one of those bands that, that you're never quite sure whether it was going to be there at breakfast or not the next morning. <laughs> yeah. So you needed a fairly to be fairly resilient, mm. a, a kind of tough guy who's, but I don't mean a tough guy, a hard guy. I mean a guy who is not overly sensitive. I mean, I've got, I've got stuff I can do. I can do it with other people too. It doesn't have to be only King Crimson mm. ever. But, but that's because Robert's in charge of the tap that turns it on and off, I guess. Indeed, he's got the light switch, yeah. Right, right, right. I mean, we could talk a little bit in detail while we're here, you know, I mean, uh, we, rather than chronolo starting with your yes stuff, because, yeah. uh, you know, Lark's Tongues and Aspic was such an extraordinary yeah. record when it came out. I think, you know, I felt myself as a as a young guy buying that album, you know, that I'd I'd stumbled into some 
other world that was that was you know part education part stimulation part revolution against anything that was popular in my you know in my family as you know pop culture as it were um but for you i i what you seem to um focus on i think is is the introduction of a of a guy called jamie muir into uh, your yeah life. he was uh in king crimson you were never quite sure who you were going to be playing with you know and it might be people you've never met before or you've never even heard of before it's possible so you turn up at the rehearsal room and there's a guy called Jamie. I don't know what he does. How are you, Jamie? Who are you? You know, terrific. What are you going to play? He says, drums and percussion. <laughs> and I say, I say, well, that's funny because I'm going to do that too. <laughs> so right off, we're in, it's a kind of an interesting morning. You can tell that. So uh, he was a, he just, a, I was very arrogant, very young, 18. I still imagined 18. that the music. 18. 18. By now you've already done Yes. No, no. Oh, that... Forgive me, forgive me. Okay, okay, okay. Yes, was at eighteen. That yeah, I'd be yeah, twenty-two. Yeah, yeah. Your story now. was nearly yeah. something very different just then for a second. <laughs> sorry, sorry. That's okay. That, that is okay. that is a little young. I forgot what it's like to be eighteen. <laughs> and um, so Jamie was there, and he was a bit older than me. Had a bit more experience, and and didn't mince words about what he thought my drumming was, which was basically a load of crap. Wow. Wow. So um, that was okay, and I'm I recovered from that. Um, let's let's put it this way. He, you know, I was still in the phase that young musicians go through, where they think that the music exists to serve them. Jamie, in no uncertain terms, pointed out that I existed to serve the music. Oh, wow! He was uh, all, all all about how music works and how you can apply yourself to music. But Robert too. These are very interesting men. But I was thinking more about the idea of exploring musical percussion for you was was jamie the 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 inspiration for that yes certainly i was just on drum kit i thought the world probably began and ended uh you know from my snare drum to the outer edge of my cymbals that was kind of the word world i knew uh, but then there are other ways of looking at percussion and particularly in terms of timbre and the texture of the sound so jamie would have it was the first guy i heard play a trash metal drum kit really with a baking tray in the bass in the bass drum and chains all over the snare drum and tom toms and bits of metal all over the place, it sounded terrific. Wow! But these were newer newer ideas to me. And is that Tim at the beginning playing all this sort of on Lark's tongue? Yes, indeed, that's him at the beginning playing. Uh, I don't know what it is—a little thumb piano. I think he's playing thumb piano, a kalimba, you know, little tiny thumb piano. Yeah, that's it because it's a very well what, what you would say was to be known as village music. It's kind of very much that. It girl, is it's very it is. ahead of its time in that respect. It was. And what I like actually about that opening thing, they just for the first couple of minutes, it goes from the, the, the smallest instrument you could possibly think of in the world, really, a thumb piano, playing a tiny little melody, ding, 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 through to the biggest, <laughs> the biggest climax at the beginning of a heavy riff that comes in about two yeah. minutes later. Yeah, yeah, and it yeah, goes yeah. from minimal, absolutely the most minimal music you can think of to the most maximal. It's the most extraordinary piece of music. It's, it's a whacking great big hit. It's great. It really is. You know, uh, Guy, did you um, did you see the Nick Cage movie, Mandy, recently? No, I didn't. Oh, well, with my, uh, my son, who's uh, he's actually a very, very good musician anyway, but was, was, he was obsessed with movies. Uh, Milo, he's, he was 17. He's watching this film and he said, oh, Dad, have you, you know this track by King Crimson? And it was, star, you know, st Starless uh, is... is uh, one of the tracks on that film. Is you it? must know that, Bill, do you? you... Is that, I, I have not seen that. It's called Mandy by, Nicholas, by Nick Cage. Nick Cage's in it, yeah. You're probably getting some royalties coming through. <laughs> oh, terrific. <laughs> I'll stop the flow. 
and, and he, don't bury me in the royalties. But that period of uh, of uh, King Crimson, when it was just you, you know you and Robert and John Wetton, that that track, by the way, st- starts is one of the most beautiful. I mean, Guy sent it to me yesterday as well because he is. loves it too. We, yeah, we were lucky with that one. We we were lucky, you know. I, I, I maybe with you guys too. You're not quite sure uh, when you've recorded something. I think it takes takes me at least. 10 years to listen to it with any dispassion at all. I have no idea whether it's any good or not when we when we do these things. So when we made some of the better records I've made or well-known records like Close to the Edge by Yes mm-hmm. or or Red by King Crimson or Larkstones by King Crimson, I tend to get up and leave the studio as quickly as I can at the end of that. And I'm not sure whether we've done any good or not. Wow, that's, that's quite interesting because it's, you know, the one's meant to be excited. <laughs> I know I, I am excited, but I think I'm excited by pretty much everything uh, I, I do when I've completed it. I've, I, I love it. I love the whole process, but I'm exhausted and I still can't tell whether it's got legs or not. And it's something we'll be talking about in half a century's time. Yeah, that's true. You know, which is what w- w- is, would be nice if that can happen. And I'm thrilled that it has happened several times for me. Actually, to be fair with you saying that you're basically exhausted at the end of recording, uh, you do probably work a lot harder than we've ever have done <laughs> in terms of what you actually put in. But, Guy, you love that later, because uh, obviously they disbanded and they came back with but discipline. That was that, the, uh, that, that, um, yeah, that, that 1980 era Crimson was, was really, really special for me at the time. But what, cause it was the birth of art rock. And it, what, what's, and it felt so new and modern and relevant and... I was such a fan of Baloo and Tony's, and you're, it was just—it was a dream lineup for me. Yeah, but, it was—it was great, but, great fun. But what's interesting is because there's something in Tony's playing which I think brings—he brings a certain humour to things. I think, which in a way that a lot of bass players can't. I, I, I don't know how to describe that. A well. certain humour. Yeah, I think he's got. Well, he's got lots of things that he's good about. First of all, he doesn't say anything, and secondly, he plays exactly the right thing, which is always yeah. too great. Great, great things. Uh, but also, um, he has, he gives you this feeling, doesn't he, that he's making it up for the first time as he plays the yeah, bass that yeah, night. It's, yeah. Now, he, he, he may have well played the same notes in the same order a couple of nights earlier, but it doesn't feel like that. It yeah. feels like every time he's inventing it again new for you. I think it's very important in, in repetitive part playing. You're feeling that it's new. Tonight, it's new and it's for you. It's really important. It's like the myth. I was thinking of hotel rooms. It's why you can never be comfortable in a hotel room if you go in and it hasn't been made up. Because the myth is good. Because of this myth is you go into this oh. hotel room and no one's been there. It's your room. I never thought and of that. <laughs> that's what, what that's you, put what, me off hotels completely now. What are you saying? It's that's something you have to do with gigs. It's the same thing that to the audience, this is the only gig you're playing. Correct. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. I think it's a, a very good way to look at it. And yeah. I, I fidgeted too much. I think I was bad at repetitive music. I used to get fed up with playing the same thing twice, uh, much to the irritation of my colleagues. I think I should probably have adopted some of these much more mature attitudes that we're looking at it now, and that I probably would have enjoyed the music more on a nightly basis uh, than I actually did at the time. Are you th- saying that? Possibly one of the reasons you, you're you're so adventurous and and textural and uh, in your playing and, and and diverse is because it would be bloody boring just to lay down a backbeat throughout a whole song. I think that's uh, a very succinct way of putting it. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not really your backbeat guy. It's nothing wrong with backbeats, and people do it really well. 
and I have nothing but respect for any way, any way anybody wants to get on in music. However, my way happens to be finding something a bit different or trying to imagine how drums could be used differently or how could we place the beat in a different way or what would make this, what would keep this drummer awake and what would keep the audience awake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah the, tr- the trouble with a backbeat is that the, the listener tends to start at the beginning and check that the rhythm is happening psychologically and it goes okay. Uh, and then nobody listens to the drummer again for the next seven minutes unless something goes wrong. <laughs> yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. which is okay, but but uh, I feel more outward going than that. Do you know, I got a bass player and a drummer right here in front of me. This is great, right? So we, we were talking about Tony Levin here and the, and the this very distinct sound that he has <laughs> and the strong personality. I'm just wondering, are you guy? Are you playing differently if it's a different drummer, or Bill? Are you playing differently if it's a different bass player, or is this there this little tug of control that is constantly going on? Good question. Guy, you first. Okay, well, there's multiple different relationships <laughs> with, between bass players and drummers. There are, ba- there are drummers I work with where I feel really, really tight. And it's like Jed Lynch, for instance, who I work with a lot. It's like he, my notes will always fall on his bass drum. It's just that, that's what happens. Then there's someone like Andy Newmark where my, our groove is always completely locked in. He's not really, feels like he's not really listening to me. The bass drums don't sync up, but the whole thing works beautifully. And then there's other people you tell what to do. <laughs> <laughs> now you're that doesn't up, include but... Nick Mason. That doesn't include no, no. Nick Mason. But... No, no, no. Nick, I absolutely do. But Nick is so fantastically <sighs> musical and snaky. Yeah, that, you know, yeah. So, Yeah, really good. I, it's, I think it's a very good answer. I, I just think I'm playing with people rather than instrumentalists. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I'm particularly more tuned into the bass player than the fiddle player. It's just that the bass player probably will be playing throughout the song, mostly, in most much popular music. However, in King Crimson, it was all episodic music. It, people would come and go. The drums might start and stop seven times in, in a seven-minute piece of music. Um, and sometimes the continuum or, or the most running, the most, most space occupied by an instrument might be the guitar player. So I'm listening more to the guitar player. The bass player stopped by that point. You see what I mean? It's, it was, yeah. I'm, I don't have that fixed relationship. I never did have a fixed relationship with the bass player in quite that sense. Even with Chris Squire? Even with Chris Squire, I would say. I mean, he was three quarters of the way up the bass neck anyways, <laughs> sounding yeah. a little like a lead guitar. So yeah, um, A little. Um, I. I don't know. I, I've never rationalized this thing about drummers and bass players. I, you know, I, I, I play, we play together. It seems okay yeah. to me kind of thing is about as far as I get. But you had, because you had one period in Crimson where you were essentially two trios. Which bass player am I playing with? <laughs> wow, yeah, very true. And, how, and yeah. how, to, how to mix a, this is a great one for producers, how to mix an album with two drummers, two basses and two guitars. You know, that's tricky. Where do you wow. put the bass drum, the one that's playing? Do you put that in the middle or do you de- <laughs> both kits left and right, except that the left guy's not playing at that time, for example? So that was quite interesting. But um, yeah, it, they were bass players nominally, but everybody yeah, was contributing to a fabric, a fabric of music, yes. And I joined in that too, and I didn't, I didn't prioritize one musician over another. I don't just lock in with a bass player, for example, and listen to nobody else, which is what some drummers might do. Well, you can never not listen to Robert, surely. (laughs) 
This is true. <laughs> it would be unwise. Let's uh, actually. Uh, <laughs> Let's should we go back to to your beginnings, Bill, of in music? And, of course. And, uh, what first turned you on? Uh, well, it's very simple, really. I came from jazz, which is a four-letter word, <laughs> uh, a bit like rock. Who I was uh, was it on one of your shows? I was I was listening to I think you with Nick, Nick Mason or somebody like that. I can't remember, but somebody was saying that rock was the new old people's home, which is a fantastic, <laughs> a fantastic uh, phrase. Yeah. I mean both. Both the words rock and jazz are so tired that they should be retired. Yeah. You know. However, uh, I started as what was called a jazz musician in the in the sort of fifties and sixties, and grew up with jazz. Learned how to play jazz drums. What turned you on? Why? 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 Why not the the Beatles like everyone else? Oh, well, <laughs> mostly you can blame the BBC. You know, I, it was BBC Jazz Six Two Five on Saturday nights, prime time. Humphrey Littleton was ah. was the the MC. And they had in all the great guys. They had in, you know, Freddie Hubbard and Art Blakey and Max Roach and Sonny Stitt and, you know, all the, all the great guys. So I just sat there as, as a 12-year-old with a pair of drumsticks, bewitched. And right away, well, two things immediately. I couldn't understand how nobody seemed to play any wrong notes. How was that possible? That nobody, <laughs> there's no music and nobody played any wrong notes. That was brilliant. And the second thing was that the drummer at the back seemed to have a huge amount of control that nobody really went anywhere very far without the drummer's say so so he was like kind of a guy driving a coach and horses at the you know up on the thing the four horses and the drummers at the back on a riser and when he whips the whip they can really go when he just reins it back in they rein back in there's a great sense of of ebb and flow generated from art blakey well he's the leader of the band <laughs> That's true. But I, start, I started with jazz. But the great thing I did, of course, which you guys nearly did, but not quite as well as I did, was get born in 1949. Yeah, top work which there. Puts, which puts you at kind of 18 or 19 years old in 1968. Ooh. Kind of magical age, you know, um, where everything was happening. You know, Paris riots and Jimi Hendrix and God knows what. It was all, you couldn't really go wrong because it was such an exciting time, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all the jazz guys were slipping into this new thing called rock, you know. So Mitch Mitchell, who I knew in the Riot Squad, and as a, oh, right. as a studio musician, he was falling into Jimi Hendrix and kind of playing Elvin Jones in Jimi Hendrix, you know. And then Bitches Brew coming up. And... Well, yeah, a little That's few years later, ahead. Yeah but, yeah. yeah, but it was a very exciting time. You could be anything you wanted to be, except, funnily enough, you, you could be Coltrane or you could be Jimi Hendrix, but you couldn't quite be both you're not allowed to like both you know jazz was jazz and they were terrible at playing rock and rock was rock and they were ter- even worse at playing jazz and never the twain shall meet you know and you was as a rock guy you were seen to be as a jazz guy you were selling out if you joined a rock guy terrible uh, remember but, selling but, out yeah but that's so, interesting yeah, you say that yeah. because because someone like Peter Banks, you know, the, the original guitar player from Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and, and in, in Mabel Greer's toy shop. Yeah. Um, you know, you listen to his solos. And yes, you can hear the future of progressive music. You can hear Steve Howe. You can hear Steve Hackett. But you can also hear jazz. There's, there's, a, there's a jazz style in there. Is progressive music the answer to this combination of, you know, of not being able to do one or the other? It's uh, uh, an interesting idea. As if by default, if you can't do one or the other properly, you end up as a progressive rock musician. <laughs> but you like wish that. to do That's both. That's quite a good idea. I would say, I would say there was sort of no. two two branches with that, wasn't there? In, in the, the progress, the people who wanted to be jazzier 
tend to became what became fusion and a, a lot of the progressive stuff i would say was rock musicians who actually had classical chops and wanted to play there was a yes. lot of classical stuff in there yeah i agree totally there's very little jazz and progressive yeah. rock i mean if you take somebody like rick wakeman i mean there's not a note of jazz in the man's body i, I yeah. mean he, do, he doesn't know what a blue note or a bent note is it's not it's not possible he arpeggiates everything he's an, he's a college guy and that's the, he's quintessentially progressive. I, I, if if anybody was the jazz guy, I was the jazz guy, I guess, because I wanted to make it up as I went along, and I kept leaving groups and joining other ones. <laughs> I mean, I'm fascinated by the fact that 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 it sort of came out of psychedelia in a way, didn't it? I mean, there there were you know Sid Barrett and Floyd and yes, and I love this this the name of this band that you were once in a psychedelic band called Paper Blitz Tissue. <laughs> You've, you've, either you've got a brilliant researcher or you've been digging like crazy or you've done your homework uh, or something. A, I've tried to keep that quiet for about half a century and now you've ruined my cred. <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds it like sounds so cool. I mean, it's, even, it's the club that his, that his scene revolved around. Blitz. But it also sounds like one of those art uh, cards that Eno hands out. You know, play this in the style of paper blitz tissue. <laughs> it, it, it sounds like strategy. all of those. Yeah. All of those things, you know. I mean, in my in my defence, you know, I only lasted three nights. So, so these are pickup gigs that you get when right, you right, you right, right, right. you don't know but anything or anyone. There's nothing. Fact, there's nothing to defend. Being in paper bits <laughs> tissue is probably is the highlight of your career. Notes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think what I'm saying is psychedelia was yeah. was was definitely an an uh, an introductory drug into progressive music. It certainly was. It certainly was. It preempted, you know, there was a British blues boom around the same time, and some of the blues groups strapped on a bit of psychedelia. Now, funnily enough, we were talking, yeah. weren't we, a few seconds ago about Nick Mason, and one of my first gigs, which I remember very well, was um, at the Piper Club in Rome with a band you've also not heard of, thank heavens, called The Noise. And the noise supported the Pink Floyd in in the Piper Piper Club in Rome for a few nights, and uh, you know, I love the Floyd now, of course, but but then I didn't think any of us thought they were up to much, you know. Yeah. And and they just seemed like a bluesy group with some sort of liquid light show thingy, which wasn't very effective. Well, it's quite funny you mentioned as a jazz guy because Nick has always said that because their old their their template. In their psychedelic days, which for songs like in Stellar Overdrive, which we do, which is that you was the jazz template. You had a, a riff which you played at the start, then you went off into a freeform section, then you came back to the riff and you ended it. And so the difference being that jazz players do that as you have an extended break to show off just how great musicians they are. Whereas Pink Floyd were using it as the complete opposite to show how they were just completely <laughs> winging it. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I'm not all, all sure that all jazz musicians are showing off what no, great I, musicians I they are. But, but it's, 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 a, I mean. it's, a, it's a good distinction, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about that. This, this suddenly um, you, meet, you meet John Anderson, do you? Yeah. How did that... Tell us about that meeting. Well, you're, you're too young to know this, but there was a thing called the Melody Maker. Oh, oh no, well, Melody Maker was big enough. <laughs> we all joined bands through Melody Maker. Come on. Well, so we joined a band. So I either I'd advertised or he'd advertised. I can't remember. And I said, you know, I could probably... Uh, I went along and met them at the Shass in Wardour Street, which is a drinking club of the day. And, um, Too young for that. We said... Uh, I was Chris and John, Chris Squire and John Anderson. And we'd propped up the bar and, and probably had a pint. And uh, they said they had a gig that night. 
at Mabel at uh, at Rachel McMillan's College in Deptford, um, and they were a bit stuck for a drummer. And how would I come like to come along and, and have a play? And I did. And so it's my audition was a gig. I think all I can remember about it was playing in the Midnight Hour by Wilson Pickett. <laughs> For about an hour, because <laughs> it was the only song we knew. But they could sing really well. I remember also uh, being hugely impressed by vocal harmony, and they could sing. It was great. So, uh, you know... Because you were essentially a covers band at first, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure many other rock groups of the day were as well. Yeah, we took stuff by strange bands, like, um, oh, uh, um, Fifth Dimension. Oh, right. Yeah. And... Vanilla Fudge and oh, yeah. the the Beatles and we started tinkering with them and making them a bit longer and a bit more long winded and playing the bit we liked twice because we liked it so we'd play it twice um, and so on and so forth until eventually we substituted our own bits of music for the bits of music we were spoiling and ruining and uh, and slowly we became we found our own template for how to make things work. So there hadn't been a vision of any of that when you got together to like, we're going to write our own stuff. We're going to, you know, there was no plan. Yes, you were pretty early on. Yeah, John Anderson was very quick to to jump on writing his own songs. But somehow we thought the thing written by a bloke called Leonard Bernstein was probably going to be better. (laughs) Yeah, you did America, didn't you? Yeah, we did America. Um, So... Yeah, pretty soon. I mean, over a couple of years or, or, or so, you know, we got better at, at writing our own stuff, for sure. But, we, you know, in those days, you could have two or three albums uh, before before the record company said, hold on. Yeah. You know, you haven't sold a record to anybody. We're letting you go, you know, which we were terrified of. Yeah, because the first two albums, Yes and, and, and Time and a Word, there there was a feeling of, I, I even listening back now, that you're not quite sure what you're what kind of a band you wanted to become. Completely, completely. I think, I think uh, it, Atlantic Records in New York thought that we were a British folk group for the first album or two. They knew very little about us and, and had no idea how to promote it at all. But we got better at the third album. No, oh, I mean, yours, and, is no, yours is no disgrace. I mean, we're, we're yeah, talking about fun. incredible. That, getting, getting much closer, yeah. But yeah. What's interesting, Bill, is that you say we weren't quite certain of what sort of band we wanted to become. But what... Looking back, what's so funny is that there was it was this absolutely magical period where all of the bands were becoming bands that no one had ever been before. So it's all you know, so you couldn't really know what you were going to become because it, it had never existed. Uh, that's perfectly true, and I'm I'm very comfortable with a bit of a mystery. Mm. I, I don't mind at all not knowing what's going on. It seems to me an essential part of being an artistic or creative guy is there will be times when you don't know what it is that you're doing, and that's perfectly okay. No need to judge the outcome necessarily either. Mm. In fact, if I'm ever asked to instruct young musicians, which is unwise, but sometimes I do, um, <laughs> I, I, I recommend that at least twice or, or pre- preferably three times a year, they are in some musical setting or another in which for sure they absolutely know they do not know what to play here. Yeah, I think that focuses the attention no end. You find out what kind of a drummer you are pretty fast if you sit down with Robert Fripp and Jamie Muir and they say play. That seems to be happening on stage with us a lot at the moment, but I think it's more to do with age than anything else. (laughs) What am I meant to be doing here? (laughs) When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This was revolutionary music. This was more dangerous than anything that had come before. Not only was it, it, it I say dangerous because it wasn't guaranteed any kind of radio slots. Yeah. It wasn't going to, you know, get you on top of the pops or boost your bank balance. But you were all willing to take this risk to make something that was musically, architecturally grand and huge and challenging. Yes, uh, that's true. But you make it sound uh, as though we were a brave lot and, and far, too, uh, far too brave. And you're describing it without the context. Bear in mind, the context was fabulous. Uh, there were 24-track recording studios emerging everywhere. There was a thing called the FM radio network in the United States. There was stereo positioning. Uh, Capitol Records made so much money with the Beatles, it didn't know what to do with it. Uh, you could be anything you like post-Beatles. Uh, if they had a sitar player, you could have a sitar player. If they had an orchestra, you could have an orchestra. Um, nobody was watching the clock in the recording studio. I mean, this was easy. Everybody had a gig. You could play anything you wanted to. Yeah, but also, because that was the thing for us as kids. It, it was We were used to just constantly hearing music that sounded like nothing we'd ever heard before. That was kind of the, you're only really interested in something if it sounded like something you'd never heard before. No. That's that's lovely, isn't yeah. it? I think that's yeah. great. I mean, it makes for fascinating listening and fascinating being a musician too. If people are yeah. saying, "Play something I've never heard before," or "Let's do it this way," or "Let's play it backwards," or "Or the Pink Floyd do it this way," let's do it another yeah. way. But also, it's yeah. interesting what you said about the, the about FM radio in America, which shows you how all because so many of these bands came from England, but you were clearly having to tailor your stuff for America because that's the only place it was going to. I mean, it wasn't going to get on Radio One. Correct. I remember going up and down England so often in a couple of years. I think we played Birmingham Town Hall about five times in six months, something like that. And really realising how small the UK was and how we, we weren't going to get any further. We just had to get to America. And it was quite a long time in coming. We were three years into a career before we finally managed to get on a Jethro Tull tour which was fabulous and a huge sense of relief and a, and a, a sense that um, here was a big place uh, and they could play close to the edge on a radio and they would and they did, which is amazing. And it is amazing cause the, because there's nothing American about this kind of music, is there? there you know, there, there doesn't yeah. feel very much. It's mostly classical and folk and all the things that come from the heart of, 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 our, of Europe. Totally. Totally. There's very little rhythm and blues in there. Very little black music in there. Yeah. But uh, I, I suppose the, again, for the, even for, for Americans, this was, you were going into, this was like the new wild west, but it was, it was, it was somewhere else. It was, you were opening maps uh, of music that you, you taking you by surprise at every turn. Um, and I think that's what made the, the grand pieces of, of, of 18 minute 
long uh, songs, so exciting. But how did you work that all out in a, in, in a rehearsal writing process? <laughs> it was fairly tortuous. There was a lot of blood on the floor. It was ugly. <laughs> Who brings it in? Who starts the process? Um, well, well, usually John Anderson would start it by playing something so inadmissible, something so horrible <laughs> on the guitar that by default, Steve Howe would have to say, John, we can't do that. It's awful. But we could do this. <laughs> you know, and it was all provocative like that, really. And bear in mind, we were stitching the albums together 16 bars at a time. You know, we'd, we'd stop and tape at it. We'd stop another 16 bars. Oh, that sounds good. Where could we go from here? Rick? And Rick, being a great musician, would say, oh, it's easy. You just modulate and play it backwards with an aleatoric what's it. <laughs> and, and we'd go, great idea. Let's do that. And on a good day, uh, by the way, halfway through this process, we'd break down the drums, break down the little kit and go and play a gig in Newcastle and come back and set it all up again and pick it up at letter F you know, 48 bars into the song. And so it's never going to sound quite the same, is it? No, yeah. it never sounds quite the same. And are you working in these suites, these ideas of, oh, this is this part, one of the song, part two of the song? Yeah, absolutely. We, we've, we've got an introduction, but uh, and we, we've got a kind of bridge to something, but it's got to be joined by a verse, and then we're going to need a codicil and a second subject maybe even, and all sorts of things would come and go. And... Of course, you weren't recording these rehearsals, and I wish we had recorded the rehearsals, because then we'd all remember what somebody had agreed last Tuesday was the best thing. Because you'd say, let's do it like we did last Tuesday. And somebody would say, but I don't remember what we did last Tuesday. But, and, and, yeah, but recording was awkward then. It's not like now, where everyone's got everything on their phone anyway. It was a pain in the ass to be recording it, everything, right? It was very complicated, very hard. And, of course, the, the drummer had to get it right. They couldn't really start the whole overdubbing process which took months um, until the drummer had said okay that's it so the drummer was for me was forever dropping in on edits you know where there's cymbals flying all over the place and the tempos are changing and the pitch of the snare drum has dropped because <laughs> you've changed the drum head from <laughs> and all, all that stuff it was messy but were there many overdubs or were, are you all in the room at the same time uh we're all in the studio uh we're all Everybody's playing at once, but on the assumption that four out of five people will replace their parts. They didn't all do that, but uh, mostly parts were we played on top of the drummer. And if you look at the, the 16th track going round, uh, sorry, the 24th track, every time I pop my fingers, that's an edit. Right. Across the whole, across the whole album, you know, uh, with all the music. So we had a lot of sharp knives. Very dangerous in a recording studio. A lot was, of very uh, sharp. That, that I remember those, mo sharp those razor moments. Sharp razor blades. So tense moments editing the two inch. Yeah, yeah, very tense. Uh, you put Heart of the Sunrise on the box set. Yeah, uh, it's one of the most. I was re-listening to it yesterday. Uh, the complexity of your parts, and yet the the um, the adventurousness, but but at the same time the excitement that it contains. Yeah is so extraordinary yeah. i think it's a it's one of those if you've got to show anyone a piece of prog music and you're particularly about you that seems to me heart of the sunrise is the is the one i think so too and it it was it was really the template for the next couple of albums that came so close to the edge is something similar so by now you're getting used to the idea of this you know heroic masculine 
uh, introduction, you know, of great complexity and vigor, giving away to some smoky, more pastoral kind of feminine sort of rather phase song. And then, then there'd be a slower version of that played and then a, a backward bit. And then, a you know, you were getting used to a, a sort of format, a template, if you like. Going to a wall the- music. To the major keys at the end and the triumph and the yes. anthemic stuff. Triumph and anthemic stuff, absolutely. Got to have it. Also, <laughs> one point about that is your sound on that, your drum sound is so hi-fi and modern for the time. It's, I don't know, it strikes me as it could, it could have been recorded 10 years later. Oh, it's interesting. I never thought about it. I didn't really think of a thing called a drum sound. Yeah. I didn't quite know what that was. It was what I thought you heard back off the recording mm-hmm. tape. I set my drums up and I played them, and that was that, really. Nobody said anything much. Uh, so it was all very, very simple. Well, it's Eddie Offord was the I, producer, Eddie yeah, Offord. Indeed, Eddie Offord was the recording engineer. Um, and he didn't say much. I mean, we, he, he was great, great at editing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, of course, mixing was always a fairly ugly scene with, with uh, about six pairs of oh, hands everyone, on, on your knees, desk. on your knees, everyone, everybody everyone their knees three saying, faders. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. Drop in the cymbals now, now, now. Too late, too late. You know. But you were mixing in sections as well. I take it. M- mixing in sections a little, but it's no automated mixing. Yeah. So you yeah. couldn't. You oh couldn't yeah, of course. So you couldn't keep them. Yeah, you have to. Wait. <clears throat> you can't keep a section. So, You've so, got to go all the way through. So then you basically have to mix, minute song. Yeah, and, and then edit down the mixes <laughs> once you get to yeah. the half inch. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Can we talk about Close to the Edge? Because that was my introduction to Yes, really. And uh, the phenomenal three tracks, that's all it contains. The, the, the mighty Close to the Edge, but also uh, And You and I. And, and Siberian, I used to call it Katru in those days, but it's probably Katru. Or... Well, I don't know. Take your pick. Um, I'm not sure either. But you, And You and I is, is um, I mean, we'll talk about it because obviously it was also the album that you found very difficult to make. But you actually wrote eclipse which is a section of um i, and I and did I. They, they were they were very good at being very generous to the drummers um yeah, but that's not em, a drumming part em, that's em, embryonic kind of compositional things and bits and pieces um so yeah i, I wrote some of that that's for sure but but what was it like making this record because you, you you you've said that it was it was a little bit of a struggle I, i'm afraid so and and um i, well, I don't apologize for that at all you know it's never. I don't think it's going to be particularly easy. We talked earlier about collaborative work with four or five strong-headed individuals. We we were self-aware, self-conscious, and it was taking a long time. Um, and I I I probably didn't behave very well. I shouldn't think. I was probably irritating and, and irritated. But we got there in the end. That's the main thing. But is it because that you you work? You all worked at different speeds. Some people were more forensic than others. Yes, and... yes, I think absolutely that's that's true. And of course, the drummer has to sit and wait a lot of the time mm. until everybody's ready to 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 you know there'd be a committee decision on should the bass note be an F sharp or an F natural at that point. And yeah. that's that's one note out of many that are going to come. You know, <laughs> and of course, John and uh, and Steve get the credit for the writing on the majority of the stuff. Was they, it really they, their call on all of it? Yes, I think the writing credits are fair. You know, I would say the writing credits are fair. Um, mostly, they did most of the work, but you know, don't underestimate the input of the other guys. You know, Rick was a great technician in that he could turn a 
pig's ear into a sow's ear into a silk purse. Because you're about to embark on the tour uh, of Close to the Edge. And I, th- I think you get up to the... Uh, uh, did you actually start rehearsals with the band? No, no. We, we'd finished the album and um, I thought it was time to change to King Crimson, which I really wanted to do. Uh, and bear in mind... I, I, That's again, a hell of an option to have, for anyone to have. <laughs> yes, nah, I was, King Crimson. I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I was... I was very, very young. I'd really only seen, you know, four or five bottoms in front of me, if you see what I mean. Because drummers only see people's rear ends. <laughs> and I, I'd only that. ever seen, you know, four or five guys, or played with four or five guys. So I was desperate to hear myself in some other context. Because for me, music's, you know, like, quite largely learning about yourself and trying to figure out what it is that you want to do and how you shape meaning in music for yourself. And um, you do that by playing with other guys, I think. And I, I uh, had only played with so few, so I, 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 I'd done my bit, put it like that. I am, because um, with Gary and I were talking about this earlier, because I, I find you comparable to Jeff Beck in that way. A, the technical mastery, but B, the thing of just being your own man. Of just, uh-huh. you know. Yeah, there's something in that. I never, I never thought about that. Mm. It's a hopelessly flattering comparison, but... To Jeff. No, 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 just sorry, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Well, no, but I mean, you're, oh, sorry, you're, no. You're, you're, you've never done anything careerist in any way, have you? It's, it's, you're, no. you're absolutely true to your muse. That's true, and I strongly recommend, if you can, uh, young, all young musicians, musicians listening, making um, a shed load of money, if you can, by the age of 22. <laughs> the, <laughs> the reason being that you can then play what the hell you like after that. And there's no man on earth who's going to say you've got to do this because you've got to do it, otherwise you're you're dead in the water. Yeah. <clears throat> but I was also saying to Guy that I felt when you left, you know, the band never really until Trevor Horn came along, it it, it never really um, got close to the quality of those albums, the five first five albums that you played on, or last, well, certainly the last three albums that you played on. Um, yeah, did, was there a sense from the others that 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 was because you're, of your leaving? Well, uh, two things you should know uh, right away. I, I never heard the next record, Tales from a Topographic Ocean, or The Topographic Oceans. I didn't yeah. hear that record. Still? I, still, I still have never wow. heard it, funnily enough. Wow. Um, and it's not that I'm being bloody-minded or something. It's just I, I lost interest in that particular... I wanted to turn my back on that particular field of endeavour, the yes world. Um, and, and extricate myself from it. And I wouldn't do that if I kept listening to records and finding out what people thought of them and, you know, staying in that whole world. I'd moved to camp. And although people tend to think, particularly our American friends, tend to think all British progressive rock groups are the same, I can assure you the difference between Genesis, King Crimson and Yes are as yeah. gulfs yeah. in yeah. between all three, the way these things work. Yeah. Um, uh, so I just wanted to I just wanted to move. So I didn't follow Yes at all until I heard Owner of a Lonely Heart on the radio. And I thought, wow, that sounds cracking. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't know, you know, complete strimmed, stripped down, yeah. non-progressive style. I thought, wow, that sounds great. Well, it's got, but then it's I, Trevor Horn. Like, so it's, like a tra- it. it's, yeah, it's, it's a Trevor Horn record, you know, that's. Absolutely. Yeah. But you, you did come back, didn't you, later on in the 80s with, with uh, uh, Anderson uh, Bruford, 
Wakeman and how A B W H, which sounds like Why sounds like called? an offence. Sounds like something you get done for. A B W A B W H, Gov. Yeah, let's put him in tw- twenty years. <laughs> so you came back, but why wasn't it called Yes? <laughs> because it basically was Yes. Uh, all kinds of legal reasons, right? And there was a British Yes and an American Yes, and the, don't even go there; it's too boring for. And words. there was a French We yeah. and a Spanish C as well, wasn't there? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there were, yeah. You spoke about uh, drumming uh, with, with, with different bands before, and, uh, you know, you're very much a, a man who creates parts. What was it like joining Genesis and feeling, feeling uh, that you had to actually copy Phil? Well, that yeah, what they, you did? They, were, they were quite particular, yes. And I remember Mike Rutherford's, Rutherford kind of saying, well, it should really be this symbol at that point and that symbol at that point. And I'm not very good at that. I'm, I'm not very good as a... You don't want me on a studio record, really. Or I, I, was do, I was doing a studio, as it were, a session musician thing, being paid to play. And that's okay, but I had no emotional connection to the music. I mean, don't laugh. I'm a drummer. I know you're going to find this funny. But I need some kind of emotional no, no. input into this. It's thing. as true of a drummer you know, as any other musician, absolutely. It, you know, I've, I, with Yes and Crimson, I was, I was owning my part owning the music it was it was whatever you heard was me which is lovely uh and in genesis which is probably not a wise choice for me to go and play with um they were and they were charming they're absolutely lovely guys and i felt i felt i was probably too irritating and kind of um they 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 listened to what i said which was very stupid yeah but guy you you agree me his name came with a lot of weight back in those days and when you hear oh you know Bill Bruford is, f- is filling in for Phil Collins on the trick of the tail. Yeah, no, you kind of yeah. go, oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. You know, yeah. 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 I think it would have sold tickets as well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh, you, you, you're, you're kind. I, uh, Phil, Phil's a, a lovely guy. We got on great as drummers. I mean, you know, he's a, he's a terrific drummer. And uh, we, we got on fine in, the, in that department. Because didn't you do some Brand X stuff? Didn't you do some? A little, yeah. bit, a, a little bit with Phil. That's where we were knocking around together. And he said, well, Peter... You know, Peter Gabriel's leaving and I'm auditioning all these guys and they're all terrible. And I reckon I, said Phil, I reckon I sing better than most of these other people. So obviously, you know, there was a moment silence and either one of us or the other said, well, why don't you sing and I'll play the drums until you're comfortable. Wow. Um, Because he knew my stuff and I knew his stuff sort of thing. Enough. To, to fake it. <laughs> so were you do? Was he just out front all the time for that tour? No, 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 not at all. There were two or three long, long instrumental. Of course, of course, sir. yeah, of course, bits yeah. Uh, where he'd come back and there was a great ending section called Los Endos. Oh yeah, yeah. Which was a sort of two drum thing, and it was it was great. It was a good show, um, and they they were very kind to me, very kind, and and I feel I could have been more grateful. Sorry, guys. We'll pass it on. We'll tell Mike. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we wanted. We, I, we should talk about some of the uh, of your, as you call it, special guest uh, in the box set. Um, now we're on uh, on to you playing with other bands. But um, yeah, you were talking to me about the Roy Harper album yesterday, weren't you, guys? Yeah, yeah I loved like it. That. HQ, fabulous. Yeah, it was good. Nice records. Really nice. It's, really it's, nice records. Lovely. Thank you. And, and all those nothing to do with me. It's all his songs and everything. And I and I had a. But that's very straightforward a, for you, isn't it? It's very straightforward and a, a, a sort of quiet day at the office. Mm-mm. I didn't have to think too much because probably my first or second idea would do. 
Whereas with King Crimson, in, 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 until you've got to idea number 15, yeah. you know, until you've worked yourself into a stew trying to find something more interesting. So the, the album was lovely because Roy is such a lovely guy, but he, he does have a fairly destructive, there's a little destructive side to him, I think. Yeah, It's a shame that you didn't what play on the game, that, the first big trap, because that's with David Gilmore and John Paul Jones. Yeah. Well, I think that's the only one now, that you're not on. Is there a drummer on that? Yeah. Who the hell's the drummer? Uh, it's, oh, shit, I looked it up yesterday. I can't remember. Oh, I've forgotten the name well, of the album, by the way. HQ. It's HQ. 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 It's called HQ. I, I can't remember. I can't it's, remember. It's I got can't... that beautiful song on there when, the, when, 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 old when an old cricketer leaves the Chris. Yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? Are you... Is there, a, on this, obviously, as a drummer, you're, you're serving the song, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I quite understand the rules of the game. And that's a different process to, 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 to King Crimson? And it yes, is. It is. And, and really, the few bits of sessioning I did, I learned very fast. But that must leave so much empty space in, in your head that's usually taken up with <laughs> what you're playing. I, 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 <laughs> No, I'm not sure it's, it's I that I might quite, not have put that um, very well. I'm not quite sure what it is. It's a vague feeling that I'm, what is it? That, that I'm sort of not in the right place. That somebody else would probably be doing this better than me. Steve Gabb, for a start, would do it better than me. And he'd do it in half the time. Uh, and, and good session musicians are terrific. Uh, but I just wasn't one of those guys. I'm better in a, in a, in a more, in a less controlled circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, in the studio, as you guys know, it's it's controlled, highly controlled. And you've got to remember everything and do everything exactly right. And I'm better in a messier circumstance where nobody knows what right or wrong is. Right. And right. then I'm more comfortable. There, right. Such as, such as in improvising, for example. Because there was one band lineup you had, wasn't it? Where essentially, I can't remember the name, but I'm really sorry. This is terrible researching on my part. But where you had basically, where you were playing what was sort of became all the most of the polyphonic melodic instruments and then you had three single on it you had a bass a sax, yeah, yeah. and an e-flat horn or something that's correct yeah that was, was that earthworks that was one formation of earthworks or was that wasn't it, it was yeah. it was kind of beginning of, of uh, earthworks where the the uh, electronic drum set had come of age and in, instead of, of just being something a, a bit lumpen and a bit stiff as it was in the early 80s it was getting better and it got better over about 10 years, really, from sort of mid-80s to mid-90s. Um, and around that, somewhere around that time, it became MIDI-capable and you could start to play chords and, and, and controllable under velocity. So the harder you hit it, the more notes in the chord you got and so forth, which could become quite expressive. And I thought I'd form a so-called jazz group in the sense that there wasn't any vocals uh, with some young British guys um, and I'd play most of the melodic and the harmonic information, and the other guys would play, well, I'd play the harmonic and rhythmic information, and the other guys would play the mel- melodic. They only had single-line instruments, saxophone, E-flat, tenor horn, and bass. Uh, of course, no keyboards. Um, yeah, well, keyboards came into it as well later on. But, right. but, that, but part, of, part of this thing about finding a template for your group is, is you don't have to do it necessarily. Right. You know, you, it starts you off. It gets you going. If you can't complete it, it doesn't have to become a rigid straitjacket. Do you think that was a lesson you'd learned from Robert? Totally. You get people going on a path which they can then imagine how the music can work, and then you can kind of stand back. And if they're good players, like the guys I've always mm-hmm. been fortunate enough to play with, I mean, Demon, um, then they'll pick up the ball and, and run with it. 
you know, and they and these guys did. Django Bates and Ian Ballamy, they were they were kids at twenty one, twenty two. Yeah. They'd never heard of Genesis or Yes or King Crimson. <laughs> Interesting. I've just remembered something. Um I worked with Pat Masolotto a few years ago. Oh yeah. And uh yeah, I did a funny little tour of Sweden with him. Uh fat, I mean amazing player. But he just he was talking about something that you'd said to him about oh, how it's hard to get sessions. There was a phrase you came up with. He said, once you've defined yourself as a rhythm terrorist, <laughs> you won't get any straight <laughs> sessions anymore. <laughs> I think there's some truth in that. Yeah. You know, if, if, if you're seen as a disruptor or, yeah. or, or you're, I think you're meant, good in that, I just, I, in that I area. I think it meant more just uh, musical, or well, he thought you meant more in musical style, the playing as a rhythm terrorist rather than a drummer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think something in that. It's good. Your 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 days as a, as an in demand studio yeah. musician would be numbered if you go around saying that stuff. But that 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 begs the question, really: is what do you think people want when they want Bill Bruford to come and play drums for them? That's a good question. Um, a great question. Well, it's been twenty years since that happened, yeah. <laughs> so the world has changed a lot. But if you take Alda Miola, for example sort of American guitar star or, or, or Kasumi Watanabe, Japanese equivalent, uh, people like David Horn, David Torn, um, they're looking for a slice of Bill Bruford, certainly, the sort of things that they'd heard in King Crimson. So the stuff, the so-called King Crimson rhythm section of Bruford and Levin had got some brownie points, gathered some brownie points in the, in the 80s, uh, which we expended like crazy through, the, through into the 90s and 95 <laughs> Till at the end, I think everybody was sick of us. We all want to know why you retired. Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. And um, At 59, you retired, didn't you? Uh, oh, 60, come on. 60, then. Um, because, because I uh, couldn't really hear in my ears what came next. By that, I don't mean what came next at, at bar five after bar four. I can remember that, remember that of course. Um, I couldn't imagine what more I could do to contribute. Wow. But there's an, it, this fits into your narrative very well of being your own man and controlling, you know, the controlling when you stop. Okay. Uh, true. It, it, it does. And I, I'm all for quitting while you're ahead. Um, I, I think that's good. Um, I like, you know, every drum stool I'm sitting on, it is yeah. a drum stool that some other guy, a younger person could be on. So I'm not a great fan of, 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 uh, elderly rock, really, and I'm I'm feeling that some of the some of we older guys should shift over a bit to let younger guys have have the stage. Certainly, in terms of drummers, I I am of of that feeling, um, and I thought I'd sort of clear clear myself away no. and go and do something else. Well, luckily, the and old any... drummer we're working with is the only guy who does what he does, and so there's no one else who should do it. So we're we're yeah, fine yes, doing yeah. what we do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. No, no regrets though. Bill, no urge to, to 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 pick. I mean, people must be phoning you all the time and saying, "Come on, come and play play in the studio for me." Well, you're you're very kind, but it, it, um, there there are younger drummers, terrific younger drummers, and, and or, or worse than that, there are there are plenty of records with no drummers on that sound like that. that yeah. electronically. <laughs> yeah. That's played. true. That's true. There's automated drums everywhere, which is totally convincing. I think there's a whole whole army of young people who've never heard a human being playing with another human being on a record. Do you regret, are you saddened by the fact that that extremely brilliant musicianship 
is no longer necessarily commercial. I mean, if you when thinking back to the, your days of of, mm. of of yes, you know, this is the most extraordinary players coming up with the most extraordinary difficult things and getting the albums to number one. That that sort of doesn't exist, does it? it? It doesn't really, but it rather depends what you're calling extreme. You know, I think you're referring to extreme instrumental prowess. Yes. Uh, but, you know, like like Paderewski on the violin or, or, you know, I mean, guys who can really play. That's that's an old 18th century idea, 19th century idea as well. Um, and I think there's a modern version of that. Do you know Lewis Cole? No, uh, I should you, do. Oh, you, you should definitely know Lewis Cole. Uh, these are the guys. We could have just said yes guys. and then go and research it. So by the time this uh, comes uh, out. It's going to be everyone over Twitter now going, Louis, what an idiot. Yeah. Lewis, Lewis Cole. Did he win the X Factor? <laughs> I mean, young guys conceptualize a whole thing about all their music because they can play all the instruments. You know, Jacob Collins? Yes, 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 of course. Yeah. Well, young, young people can <laughs> conceptualize everything about the music. They play the drums, they play the bass, they, you know, they yeah. can ar- arrange the heck out of it for, for the WDR big band. Uh, they can have a choir sing it or. So I think that is virtuosity, being able to yeah. marshal vast sums, vast amounts of music uh, from all corners of the earth, get it into a coherent form, either with humans or without humans, uh, and produce some sort of a product at the end of the day which says, um, this is me. I think that's hugely virtuosic. Now, the, the guy might not be um, Bill Bruford as a drummer, or he might not be you know, I don't know, um, Eric Clapton on guitar, but it doesn't matter. He's got a he's got a broader over over understanding where this music is going. And I think that's terrific. So I think there's a kind of virtuosity going on in music, although it's not necessarily instrumental. Bill, thank you so much for um, yeah coming on. We've been wanting to get you on for a while. Prog well, is one of our. Uh, uh, elements in this in this series of it wasn't podcasts. meant to be, but it's it's just how it's it seems to be where where we've come. Before uh, we do go, I wonder because one of the first things I did, I got in touch with my old friend. Well, both of our friend um, Phil Manzanera, but you come yes, Apparently, yes. he's he he said he, he he's been a champion of this show for early on, and he was saying you've got to get Bill on. And I think he was actually reaching out, but I said, have you got anything you'd like to say for us? And he said, apart from wondering why he still looks so young. <laughs> total, ab- total admiration for pursuing his own musical dream, being his own man, and if something doesn't feel right, he's off. Very industrious, very witty, and self-deprecating. <laughs> but this is this is the key thing that I was referring to. It's very difficult for a drummer to have a unique style, but I can spot Bill's drumming a mile off just by the sound of his snare. There's something in that, I suppose. The way the way you hit a drum counts. Mm. But I'll tell you another thing that is actually important about that, if if you care about these things which is it's not so much how I hit it as where I hit it. Oh, right. and it. And it tends, it, where, where in the music I hit it. And oh, it right. tends to be that I've displaced the beat in some funny place or way. So what happens is if something smells funny in the rhythm, they probably say that's Bill Bruford. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now they might like that and they might hate that. Right. I don't care either way. <laughs> yeah. No, it's funny you say that. That's, that is the idiosyncrasy. Because, yeah. I mean, with Nick Mason, you know, the guy and I playing with Nick at the, currently... You know, Nick always wants to fall slightly behind the beat all the time. You know, uh-huh. and that's and that's what gives it the Pink Floyd feel. You know, yeah, yeah. It 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 always feels like a slower tempo than it is in the floor. Yeah, exactly, it's it, exactly it, that. 
it has a sort of Pink Floyd low yeah. piece sort of, yeah. yeah, you know, which never never gets much more than about ninety nine BPMs. <laughs> you know, it it's it's sort of plod plods not plods it lopes along. Yeah. Yes, I think yes. in a rather nice way. So you got a PhD. You went and did a PhD for four years at uni. I, I in did. Music. I did imagine that. So, so I'm a musicologist now. So look out. Well, it's because you were offered an honorary one, right? You said, but no, I want to do the graft. I, I was, I was. They, they well, you retired. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, and uh, they were very good to me. And uh, I was at Surrey University, and I've got to say, you know, if if at any moment you worry about or or question um, young people who are aged twenty to twenty five, I assure you, they're very smart, and they play instruments really, really well. <laughs> And the thinking about music is hugely exciting and encouraging. And it makes me feel like, of course, I was the oldest guy on campus, of course. And I felt like a fossil. So, you know, you can imagine they're pretty smart. And music yeah. moves along at a, at, a, at a fast pace at some of these universities. Really good. Oh, that's good yeah. to know. Yeah. Well, thank you for everything you've given us, yeah. Bill, over the years. Phenomenal work. Gary, you're very kind. I, I appreciate being asked on. And I, please edit out the embarrassing bits, won't you? There isn't any, I don't that, think. That, that's <laughs> only from, that's yeah. only from us. Good to see you both, and thank Great you so much for having me thank on. Thank you so much. All the best. All the very best to you. Cheers, thank guys. you. Bye. Hey, that was good. That was delightful. What a, what a, oh, God, what a lovely man. Again, you can And for those who obviously can't see, he's got an amazing cherubic smiling face, yeah. doesn't he, the whole time? Yeah. He does look impossibly young. There's definitely, there's, there's, a, there's a portrait up in the attic, isn't there? We'd love to get Robert Fripp on at some stage, wouldn't we? We have asked, Robert's been asked a couple of times, and he's a little bit shy, but he's also very busy doing his kitchen thing yeah. that he does with his wife, Toya. So actually, if there's anyone out there in a position to lobby, <laughs> Robert Fripp. <laughs> <laughs> he's been very sweet about saying no. He's, he's uh, That's part of his enigma, isn't it? It is, yeah. But he did manage to say no in 1716. <laughs> Uh, that's a, a musical yes, time signature, not a not a year. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been impressive. Anyway, we're off. Uh, you'll be you're going to be hearing this in a, in about a week's time, I think, or, or something. But because we're actually off to do our last UK gig today in real time. Yes, uh, at the legendary Fairfield Hall. Yeah, looking forward to that. Much looking forward to that. Well, it's good night from me, and it's good night from uh, the seventeen sixteen of us. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.